running a small business can be tough. I mean, you're not just the CEO, you're also the marketing, the finance manager, and everything else in between. Technology, however, and digital tools can play a big part in taking on some of these tasks, giving you that much-needed headspace to focus on running your business. But it's hard to know where to start, which tools are right for you, how do you go about integrating them, and when is the right time to make the investment. MasterCard's Strive UK programme has been set up to make it easy for small business owners to access the support needed to digitise, whether that's incorporating accountancy tools or new digital payment methods. Through free guidance, helpful tools and personalised one-to-one mentoring, Strive is empowering small business owners across the UK to succeed. For more on how Strive UK could help your business, visit mastercard.co.uk slash drive. Okay, here's the show. For many, many years, I worked with, and like so many of the men around me, was forceful, myopic, competitive, driven, and I went into the alpha world of work and I took it on and I did really, really well. Until something deep inside me whispered that if I continued like that, I'd not only just burn out, break down, or worse, but I'd lose something fundamental to me. And so I went on a journey of reading, discovery, philosophers, thinkers, poets, and spiritual leaders. But the voice in my head kept on mocking because throughout my career, I'd been told not to be emotional or woo-woo. And spirituality and intuition, well, (laughs) I'm laughing now, but... Believe me, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that had no place in an alpha world that trusted rational, concrete facts and data. But slowly I realised that although I'd taken on the robes of alpha culture, my success had in fact come from my truth, my feminine power, creativity and instinct, intuition and empathy, yes, and being emotional. And only by allowing this free expression would I truly live an authentic and thriving life. And along the way, I always surrounded myself with some amazing women. Some I work with, others are friends, but all of them are forces of intellect, passion and honesty. They believe, just as I do, that there's this new kind of power bubbling up. It's long been denied and suppressed, but none of us can stop it anymore because we are on the cusp of a shift to a new, more humanist approach to a broken world. And they're not exclusively women, of course. Many men are tapping into this, but all of them are beautiful misfits of whatever gender. All of them embrace this vital feminine energy. Empathy, creativity, collaboration and instinct are right at the heart of this new movement to create something better and more beautiful. I call it the power of the feminine and I see people all around me creating a new dialogue around it. And the reason I call it the power of the feminine is that we have been living under a patriarchy. We now need this power We now need to embody it. My guest today is a woman who's been doing this for years. I first met Jude Kelly 
after she asked me, well, she just called me and said, would you come and speak at my Woman of the World Festival? And, of course, I said yes. Everybody says yes to Jude Kelly. Jude is best known for her work in the theatre. She made her name establishing the West Yorkshire Playhouse as one of the UK's leading centres of theatrical excellence before moving on to the National Theatre and becoming artistic director of the Southbank Centre for 12 years. But she's so much more too. Jude mentors, she campaigns. Look, she just gets stuff done. Jude founded the Women of the World Festival to celebrate the achievements of women and girls and confront global gender injustice. What started as a three-day festival at the South Bank in 2010 now takes place in 30 locations across six continents. But at the heart of it all, of course, is a very human story. A woman deeply connected to her creative feminine power making her way in a world that doesn't always make that easy. Jude once said, My grandmother left school when she was 12. She had 14 children. My mother left school when she was 15. She was a secretary. I graduated from university to become a theatre director. And that progress is entirely to do with the fact that people I'll never meet fought for women to have rights, to get the vote, get education have progress, and I'm determined to do the same. This is Beautiful Misfits, and I'm Mary Portas. Welcome, Jude Kelly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we can't do a short introduction to you. I'm sorry you sat through that. But actually, to me, when I start and try and express why I've come up with the idea of Beautiful Misfits, so much of my thinking and my energy has come from the work and, and the times when I've sat with you or even had 10 minutes with you or in a foyer of the theatre or before I go on stage, there is a, just a wonderful connection that has affected and had a frequency with me that's just opened me up to be even better than I thought I could be. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, thank I you. <laughs> um, That's probably because I like you. <laughs> <laughs> That's important, isn't it? Very important. And it's different from loving, isn't it? Because I've loved people but not actually deeply liked them. Isn't that terrible? I think liking people... Well, first of all, I, I would sort of set out with the intention of liking people until proved otherwise. Yes. Because it's such an amazing thing to be a human. Yes. And every day, you know, we're bumping into loads and loads of our own species and we're sort of sniffing them out. And the tendency is to sort of be cool until you you trust. And that's probably wise for some circumstances and some people, but I've always felt, yeah, that I want to like people in advance of them proving that I shouldn't. Do you like the idea of a beautiful misfit? I mean, I've invited you on here because you do... You've been brought up in a world that just didn't represent women and therefore, you know, you've you've been living in a society not designed for them and it feels mm. to me that you've constantly wanted to change that society through women, empowering well, women. Yeah, I absolutely do think that that feeling of being a misfit, which I, you know, lots and lots of people in the arts of course. say, you know, I'm an outsider, I don't really fit in. Mm. And you could say, actually, that people who are sort of longing to immerse themselves in fictional stories as a way of sort of saying this is important are in some way saying my story is not the point, these other stories are what I want to convey. And that can be because people feel as if 
they haven't got a story that fits a narrative. Yes. So they create the drama around somebody else's story. But I think that when I was little, one of the things that happens to lots of enthusiastic girls, and I use that word very specifically, enthusiasm in a child to change things, to do things differently, to what about if we didn't do this? What about if we did this? Like the adventurous bit of your mind. I'm not just talking about like, you know, jumping on a bike and going somewhere, but sort of changing the circumstances. I can remember so many occasions when not my parents, but basically teachers and sort of, you know, brown owls and people who... That's want... head of the brownies for people who don't know that. <laughs> people who wanted to manage children really found it irritating my desire to make a difference in the world that I managed. You know, and so you had these words like bossy and precocious and outlandish and over-enthusiastic and over-imaginative and all of these things, which are words that make you feel guilty for the personality you've got. Mm. And you spend a lot of time in your life, I think, working out whether you need to recalibrate your personality so that you can fit in or whether you just splash it about while you work out how you can make use of it. I get that totally and, as usual, articulated beautifully and brilliantly. But I don't think I was aware that I was that. I was exactly that. And so because I felt I wasn't understood, it went into being quite naughty and just doing stuff that I just thought gave me a thrill and wonderfulness because it felt very samey and boring, the world that I was inhabiting. But eventually I found my space through that. I found my space through just doing what I instinctively wanted to do. And it opened up to me, but I didn't think I was aware that I was different. I didn't even want to conform. Mm. I think I was aware that I yeah. was always pushing the boundaries of what I wanted to explore. And, you know, I was growing up in Liverpool at a time when Liverpool was very vibrant, musically, artistically, in all kinds of ways. And um, we moved from being a girls' grammar school to a comprehensive school That's when I was exactly 14. Minded, exactly. Thank goodness for me. Mm. It, in one way, it was fantastic because I stopped having the kind of, this is what good girls need to mm. look like and this is what good girls' leadership looks like. And you were in this sort of bonanza of all these different kinds of people because it was a secondary modern as well as a grammar school boy and a grammar school girls all mixed up together. That was fantastic. But that was also when I first realised that girls had to come second because, you know all of a sudden boys insisted on having the limelight, having the first go at stuff, and all the teachers who had previously been women all became men. And I think that was the beginning of me feeling as if I had to start acting out or go under. So I, I actually did misbehave enormously between the ages of 15 and 21. I was on probation until I was 21 mm. because I shoplifted, I helped people steal cars, I truanted beyond belief at school, I hitched off to pop festivals and did all kinds of stuff which my parents weren't aware of until I ended up in court a couple of times, which, of course, they were aware of. And the saving thing for me was my head teacher at the time, Will Podjoy, saying to me, I think you're an existentialist, aren't you? And, you know, I had no idea what he was talking about. But I was so flattered that he didn't just say, you know, you're a selfish little git, aren't you? He basically said, you're unable to believe that the meaning that we have given you is the meaning that you can buy into. And so you're testing out all the meanings. That's it's wonderful. That yeah. is utterly wonderful. 
But that meaning that you thought we were being brought into was effectively the patriarchy and that you were second in that. I mean, my daughter was the same. She went to all-girls school and then went to sixth form. And this we're talking now, I mean, just like only a few years ago. And she said, Mum, suddenly I'm not the funny one in the class anymore. It's the guys. Yeah. And it's so... It's such a shock. We're talking now still. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's why I started WOW, Women of the World, because I knew that people were 13 years ago when I started. They were kind of conning themselves that somehow, like, this is all different now. I'm able to see generations of kids now. In fact, my own granddaughter at four with her Elsa outfit from Frozen, you know, all still having to grapple with exactly the same stuff. And I think we sometimes misunderstand that societies modernise so we can see that we are theoretically more modern than, you know, people before. But everybody's moved forward. So... It doesn't mean that women's relationship to equality is actually significantly different compared to the relationship of equality generally. Do you see what I mean? Like, we- No, of course I see what you mean. So here's the big thing, and there are so many questions on this. The construct of society is effectively still the patriarchal construct. Hmm. Right. That's what we've moved forward and got better and or we've pushed into that construct to create equality. We've shone a light on it so that you can actually see the structure now, but we don't know how to dismantle the structure, but that, we at least we can see it. Right. Okay, cuz that, so that's the thing. At least we can see it because at the time even 5 years ago when I wrote work like a woman and just before me and Cheryl Sandberg came out with Lean In and she was basically advising women and brilliantly career I mean of how to lean into the system. Yeah. Whereas mine I wanted another not even a system I wanted another way that embraced what I'm now calling the power of the feminine because I think that is how far we need to go you'll know you're way ahead of this on me to create another way of being. Now, where I'm at is, can the two sit together? Someone described it as the patriarchy as being like, you know, we've been 500 years. I'm sure it's not much longer than that, but I'm just, let's say, five, the last 500 years in this space where it's one bird flying with one wing, basically, and that wing, as it builds muscles and is flying around in circles, gets angrier, and, you know, that's how we get wars, and actually the other wing needs to come up, which is this power of feminine, which is all the stuff that has been suppressed within this world that we're living of power, where power, money, and fame are the tenets of success. Can the two come together? Are we building another type, or do we need to break the whole thing down? Mm. I know that's a really big existential question. That maybe your headmaster wasn't he the same headmaster for John Lennon? John Lennon, yeah. yeah. John and you're Lennon. dead cool, you are. John- <laughs> dead cool. Dead. John Lennon was, well, you know, he was way ahead of me in time. But he, I think, also he was both disruptive, yes. but he was artistic, and yes. he had a way of placing his ideas inside frameworks, and obviously music, but in his case, also writing poetry and creating art. My thing was, I needed to make stories happen so that I could place the idea of possibility inside these narratives. And that's why, you know, I eventually went into theatre. But to take your point about, I mean, 500 years is one thing, but, you know, we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about the Quran, we're talking about every theology and every kind of canon reinforces over and over and over again the idea that the implicit centre of creative life is God-given finger to finger, you know, God to Adam or God to Muhammad or whatever. And it, it makes women feel that they are an accessory 
to the central idea of what a human is. And once women are perceived and written into the script as the accessory to the central creativity, the godlike divinity, which is what a human is supposed to have, then you automatically will have less rights. There is a direct relationship between the idea of you know, central story and human rights. And we've been so you know, trained and groomed to believe it that we do most of the policing for ourselves. Mm. And when we're told that really what we need to do is think about how we can be attractive and supportive and submissive, we do all that stuff because that gets all our approval rates as a woman, high scores. Can you change at the same time as upholding the structure? Well, I think this is the place that we're in at the moment. Most of us love men. I do, certainly. You know, many of us live with them. We have sons. We had dads that we probably liked, most of us. And we have work colleagues and friends. So, you know, you're not trying to push men out of the story. No, it's not pushing men. You, it, you're really trying to say the structure that said yeah. one was more equal than another has to disintegrate. Now, so much is built on it already. You know, the way people have their identities, everything about, you know, fashion, aftershave. I mean, there's so many things that make this idea of male identity as a binary opposite to women in terms of the way that power gets expressed. I think it can change, but I don't think it can just be lived alongside of, actually. I think men have to want a world that allows them a different kind of feminine energy, a different kind of freedom, a different sort of way of expressing themselves. And I don't see it changing unless that happens, because otherwise women are, are kind of almost auditioning alongside men to demonstrate how much they can do and how useful they can be. But the things that happen, like Afghanistan, which although it's extreme, and the, and the Roe v. Wade decision make you realize that women coming up to have their rights alongside hovering in the air to use your analogy of wings it's very conditional on the society going yeah that's what we want at the moment because it can drop away again yes and when we look at the size of it it's something quite frightening and i think why are we even on this journey but we still keep coming oh back god yes so we still yes. keep coming back to it and you started the women of the world foundation when you started that what was your end goal belief in that? It is that if you had a gender equal world, it would be a totally amazing planet yeah. that we lived on. Yeah. That's a fact. All this undiscovered energy. And the, the reason I called it wow was because I wanted to say, if you think what girls and women have achieved when they've not been equal, just imagine what they would do if they were equal. It's bananas that we don't want that to happen. It's bananas that we don't all want it to happen. So my end goal is still to make people so excited about gender equality that they yearn for it and then they start building it. And, you know, that's why, in a sense, the, you know, the, the idea of celebration, I used the word enthusiasm at the beginning, but you have to be enthusiastic for a different world. You have to be excited about it. Much as there are things to be very angry about and to feel very 
beaten down about and much of the kind of plaintive conversations that we can have about things, that energy will not drive change. And the other thing as well, you talk about, you know, so many women, well, what we're half society, but because so many times I've sat with super educated women and they just go, I don't watch the news anymore. You know, I don't want to hear that. Now, of course, I don't really want to hear it, but we can either be passive or we can use that passivity and put it into an anger that creates activity and moves forward. And boy, you've done that in spades. I love this quote that you said in an interview in 2020. The complexity that women deal with often unwittingly makes them interesting. They can't be complacent. They have to negotiate around male feelings. All that makes us often quite dexterous as well as empathetic, which, yes, totally and utterly get. I love your ability to celebrate women, but we are still doing this. Do you do this sometimes? Do you negotiate around males? All the time. Is it because instinctively, and I've got to be careful how I say this, but actually now I'm going to say this, I think most women I know incredible women like yourself want harmony harmony therefore and i've seen it in a family i'm one of five kids you know three brothers i remember the father you know when my father came home like oh god don't set off dad don't set off don't start that crap you know with that little fear inside you or you know my brother's arguing with him and me and my sister going don't even do it don't go there michael don't do it you know do we negotiate because actually intrinsically we are harmonious creatures and that males aren't as much and therefore that will never shift that we won't be doing that? Does that sound defeatist or, or, or I just even just I hadn't thought of that before. I think it's not defeatist because you can say that as the world discovers new things about the way that the brain works, it starts adopting more useful ways of behaving. I mean, obviously, it's more useful to negotiate than to hit somebody over the head with a club. Yes, so you would, looking at the world today, that's not what we're seeing with the war in Ukraine. It's hitting them over the head. It is, and that's a male energy. Well, I, I still think that the powers of creating harmony, conflict resolution, all of those sorts of things, are more current than they used to be, even though they can go out the window if the Barney really gets hot. Your question is, do women prefer harmony or yearn for harmony? Yes, I think we do. I also think that we are frightened, more than we like to admit, of male anger. Not just, you know, domestic abuse, but a sort of fear that, you know, you'll be diminished, you'll be humiliated, life will be made more miserable, the man will sulk, etc. All of which is true. Yes. So I think that what women are trying to do, you know, is lead this double life well, those of us who are trying to create a new world, you're trying to paint the picture of a world that doesn't exist. And you're trying to demonstrate that you are not crazy and impossible to deal with by managing the world in which you do exist well. And of course, you know, having loving relationships so you're not kind of completely lonely and isolated. So you're doing an awful lot of things. I think that it's both very dexterous, but I also think it makes women sometimes feel shifty. And look shifty, <laughs> because you can't be an absolutist. You can't just go, look, I'm sorry, this is my truth. I'm acting it out, and you know, uh, and that's it. Because you can't operate in the world of patriarchy if you do that. The men can operate in the world of patriarchy. Well, yes, because, be that's, because it's their world. It's their world, and so mm. they can let you in, and they can sort of uh, accommodate, and some of them are fantastic. But in the end, they can also go, do you know what? Not now. Don't do it. I'm not going to, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that women, and I include myself, 
get very confused about whether you are being a genuine peacemaker for positive reasons or whether you're just trying to like hold the lid on the pan and it starts bleeding into your personality because you don't really know what you would be like if you were sort of striding out. Without those shackles. Without those shackles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very hard to be unencumbered as a woman by roles that you've been given, attitudes about you, things that you define yourself with. It's really, really difficult. I don't think there is such a thing as a, a differently evolved woman who hasn't come through patriarchy. I mean, obviously, there isn't one. So I think we are in a really fascinating self-search all the time. And I think that's why women, and not just sort of feminist language, but generally anybody who feels as if they have been told who they are and their place in society and they yearn for something else and they're on that journey to somewhere else, has to develop language and frameworks and inquiries, which makes increasingly women really difficult for men to deal with because, you know, you have yeah. loads of questions, you can kind of give them the answers as well. <laughs> and up to date, generally, men have not had to ask these questions for themselves. So they haven't developed the language of change as much as they need to, I would say. That's why I keep saying, you know, the patriarchy will change when men find it fascinating to think how what's a new chapter for humanity. Right, OK, so that's the fascinating chapter that we need to talk about, which I believe, and you will know, it's not just a feminism, it's an actual power, it's a divine feminine power that is now coming into the world with the Black Lives Matter, with the Me Too movement, with, you know, Malala, all of these women standing up and showing us, yeah. I think, what's happening in the world and actually giving a voice to it, but actually moving forward with it to make change happen. So... And it's interesting when I've talked to so many men, so many men are ready for this and so many men aren't. So instead of being angry against them and fighting the system or leaning into it, we need to show them a yeah, new way. I, I think it's also worth saying so many women are ready for it and so many women aren't. So, you know, oh, no, we, well, you know, we're already seeing it in government at the moment. Yeah, I'm sorry, it's just actually gone back. Liz Truss has gone back. Oh, no, there's plenty of women that aren't and don't know it. Of course, of course, I totally understand that. But I think it's just a new world that we want to show that men want to be part of. Yeah. And that's very different from the feminism that you'd have grown up with. Absolutely. You see, I don't think that until recently we have named structural inequity. You know, we didn't name structural racism. We didn't name white entitlement. We didn't name ableism. And so naming something allows you to see it more clearly. And then you start seeing it in all kinds of places. I mean, that's, you know, again, with wow, I just... The reason I sort of stopped directing plays for a while, because I haven't stopped altogether, I've just done 21 monologues, actually, but is because I felt that a single play with a single story couldn't work fast enough on, on our mm. thinking compared to hundreds of stories side by side of all different kinds of people with all different sorts of life experiences where you could then go, oh, I see how every single one of these stories has something underneath it which holds it together. And that is the fact that it's in a place of struggle for change. Whether you, you know, you're talking about research into female health, whether you're talking about women and economy, you know, they're all related to starting from the idea that you are not equal. And that is true, of course, if you're black or brown, if you're not able-bodied, et cetera, et cetera. They've all got these sort of um, places that you stand in receiving another version of the world while you try to work out how you do your thing. I, I think 
intellectually really fascinating as well as frustrating because, you know, for a lot of people, the system seems fine. You know, for a lot of men, it seems fine. And for a lot of women, they're used to it and they don't necessarily want to know it's not fine. But in terms of what the human race could be like... But there will always be those who think it's fine and they don't want to deal with it not being fine, but if they see there's another way and that excites them. Because yeah. that's what we're all coming back to here. And actually... It's, it's got to excite you. Yeah. It's got to excite you. I want to be part of that. Yeah. I really want to be part of that. But you you always talk about the storytellers, and I suppose you are one. That's what you talk about. Let's tell this story. And you clearly had no problem thinking that you could be a storyteller. Did you always have the confidence of that? Yes, I did. I mean, that's something which is very interesting about trying to work out who you are. Because when you first see a little baby, there's always a sort of a something in them that you think, oh, that's them. I don't know what yeah, it yeah, is, yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. so interesting yeah. and it's, everything's so different. And, you know, even from when I was three, four, five, I wanted to get everybody together and go, you know, listen to this. So that's never changed in me. Uh, was there ever look at me with it? Because you are a director, not, mm. a, not the actor. Mine was look at me and listen to this. I wanted to be on the stage doing uh, that. Well, it was look at me f when I was littler, probably, because I did do, you know, I did dancing and, you know, I was a magician's assistant for a while. And I did all that sort of thing. I was a folk singer. <laughs> so I did a lot of performing. But it didn't see, interest me as much. I just much. cannot see you as a magician's assistant. I think it's not like Debbie <laughs> McGee types. Like, that is so... In Blackpool, would you believe, when I was 14? But anyway, what <laughs> I wanted to do more was organise stories that weren't going to be conventional. Because I really remember very early on feeling so fed up that even in the playground, like to be in a story, you were told, well, you're the squaw and you've got to be tied to the tree, and we'll come back and get you when we're ready. <laughs> you know, which is so antipathetical to my kind of sense of, no, hold on a second, I think I'm in charge, aren't I? So the urgency for me to make things happen is in the spirit of who I am. And I suppose what I was very aware of is you get pushback on that. Like, you didn't come into the world with that spirit you know, because you were being bullshit. It's just your happiness comes from being that. Yes. And yes. my reflection is that often, particularly to girls, people go, well, that's going to be all unnecessary and it's a bit too much and don't do it, which is almost telling you, like, you can't be who you are. And so in your introduction, you know, you were saying, well, there comes a point if you're constantly trying to shape yourself around other people's models of who you're supposed to be, you suddenly start feeling like an absolute fraud. I think I haven't done much of that shaping around other people's models. I've tried to take myself with me as much as possible. But it costs you something because people try to put obstacles in your way and misinterpret as well, I think, your drive for ego in the way yeah. that they wouldn't yeah. say to somebody else. So I think I've had to try and protect the little girl in me. Mm. And every so often I've left her completely unprotected and I've had to go back and kind of say, I'm sorry. Mm. Do, do you know what I mean by no, that? No, I totally know. The little mean, girl I... who's all this enthusiasm and all this energy and all they wanted, right, she's still there. And when I distance myself from that, that's when, A, I'm not authentic, and B, I feel like I'm being so unfair on her. And I'm now often saying to women who talk about, you know, not wishing to sort of put themselves forward, et cetera, I've got to say, well, look, if that was your real little girl that you were bringing up, 
you'd be in there fighting for her, wouldn't you? You know, you wouldn't let her stand in the corner feeling that maybe she wasn't needed or liked. You'd stop that happening. But somehow we do it to ourselves. So I'm, I'm constantly really trying to, even at my age... Same here. ...still go, what don't I know? What could I do? And am I looking after myself enough? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm exactly the same. And I just remember even, you know, post my marriage breakdown, I just in the terrible few years, you know, I've gone through and I'm thinking, I've not cared for me, this little person. I don't think I have. But it's very difficult. And it's difficult when you are all the things that we are, which are, you know, not outspoken, but strong women. Okay, so let's just take this idea of maverick for a minute, you mm-hmm. know, or somebody who's like on the edge, etc. It's always perceived as something which is like going outwards, changing the world outwards. And the idea that you can be like maverick into yourself, asking new things of yourself emotionally, that's a much less practised part, certainly mm. for me, of my thinking. But I'm a bit suspicious of sort of female energy, unless it includes a kind of sense that you're knowing how to deal with vulnerability and you're knowing how to ask for help and not just give help. You know, you're knowing how to understand what pain is as well as empathising with other people's. And I think a sign of a lot of women who have taken lots of leadership roles is that they find it really, really hard Probably men too, I'm sure. But since we're saying about not modelling exactly that idea of stiff upper lip, I think women who take on leadership roles traditionally have found it extremely difficult to say, I need help or I need caring, without it feeling as if that equals weak. Yes. Because we, yes. we, we broke away from the idea that we were weak women. I mean, you know, everything that I grew up with was childbirth. Women struggling in childbirth was somehow, you know, weak and they had the vapours. Women not working as hard as men because they had to do housework and this. It was all under this kind of idea of weak and being looked after. And I so resented the idea that I would be a person being looked after. I think I almost stripped out the bit of me that required looking after. And so I, I find it really interesting at this point that a lot of women are trying to be in touch with the thing that maybe they were told was female but also equaled weakness. Yeah, that's really deeply fascinating. I haven't come to terms with it yet at all, to be quite frankly. I'm working through it, but as you say, you are still. Yes, I am working on it. And, well, you know, let's say I live till 110. Should we just say that? Do you reckon that? It's possible, isn't it? I mean, hubris obviously might get knocked over tomorrow um, and uh, diseases be what they are. You know, you you can never know what's going to happen. But there is an idea of saying, okay, I'm now in an older stage of my life. So great. Now with all the accumulated stuff that's happened to me, what's the next bit of a journey that I could make that really is demanding of me? And I think for me, it's probably as much internal as external um and i haven't had much time for that in my past actually that's really interesting what is demanding of me because i feel that completely that this shift and what i want to do this and i don't i haven't even got a complete word for it. all i do know that most of the stuff that i've been working on is building up to how i could believe that we can have a better world quite yes. frankly and that um god i get why do i get upset about this but it's 
you look around, you go, what? How are we getting this so wrong? And that what has been suppressed, which is effectively this incredible, beautiful feminine power, how that can come up and just make things better. Because so much of the early movement of this would have been a fight, wouldn't it? And I never used to even feel that that was me, actually, when I saw that. I didn't ever feel connected to that time. To what, to that anger, you mean? Yes. I, I, yes. I always had that hope. Ah, I can make things better in that way. I didn't feel angry. I just felt hopeful. And, and now I feel it's gone into a much more, you know, a, a sensitive, a sentience, a much deeper deeper feeling and it's but as you say it needs to be looked at within me as well as without and that's what we have to bring together it's a complicated world isn't it because if you were in afghanistan fighting for yeah. girls to have the rights for education you would be so angry and you'd you'd probably have no time to do self-reflection on personal vulnerability because you'd have to be day and night trying to create new strategies for supporting, et cetera, et cetera. But we didn't know. Like I grew up watching from an early age men going to power in the school. We didn't know. I mean, obviously, in Afghanistan is a much, much greater heightened. But I didn't see it as an issue to be angry about. That's even worse. Mm. Well, that's exactly right, because as long as you're making some progress yes. compared to what you think your mothers did or something. Yes. You think, well, you know, what's the problem then? Yes. It's just that the inequity remains the same. Yes. Because everybody's making progress, actually. Yes. But, you know, going back to the idea of joy, what could be more marvellous than actually thinking, you know, there is a better world. There is. And we're pretty well going to get it. And let's try. I mean, yes. that's a wonderful yes. mission to have. Yes. As opposed to, you know, there's nothing much to do, is there? Because a lot of a lot of the kind of contamination now in the world, I think, is coming from people trying to keep the world the same as it is or was or they think it ought to be, like in a containing way, a negative energy. And A, it's very destructive. It's kind of quite brutalising as well. So even if you think, I don't know how we're going to get to this other world, I don't even know what it looks like to get to that world, it's as brilliant as, like, setting off to climb a mountain, not even knowing what the peak will look like, but it's in your sight. Yes. That's a different kind of joy and energy than stopping things happening yes. in society or yes. keeping things the same yes. as they were. Yes. So, And that's why it's a, it's a massive compensation for the frustration of it not being easy. <laughs> <laughs> and effectively, that's what you've done with the Women of the World Festival. It's just created this huge platform for people to show us another way. Mm. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And that's as much as we can do. Yeah, and want it. And you get energy because you think, OK, I was feeling a bit down, but wow, when I look at what they're dealing with and still coming through or thinking about, I never had that thought before, this is all fantastic. So it's a world of ideas and possibility, an equal world. The fact that we haven't got one yet doesn't mean that you're ridiculous to want it and desire it. Of course. I put up a post the other day on Instagram about BP's profits. 6.9 billion, I think it was in three months. It's insane. And we can't work out how to help people on their heating and aging. Like, it's insane. And even a few years ago, you know, what came back major support from so many people. And then I noticed the voices of the patriarchy, the old system that I had knocked coming at me. And I mean, the insults were insane. And but I was able to, knowing what I know now deeply and feel, just sit back and actually smile at it. And I felt better that I just knew it clearly. And actually, I got even more of a joy of knowing this is difficult, of course, but I know those difficulties and I'm not going to get pulled down by those difficulties because I know how you are feeling scared. 
that energy that was coming from those people that want to hold on to this old world. Yeah, and I think if you keep could, it safe, if you break through enough gates in your life, that when the voices reappear and you think, oh yeah, that was like that time and that time and yeah. that time, <laughs> you are more resilient, you know, definitely, and. It's because you can look back and see that things have got better. I mean, I often think about Anita Roddick. Oh. She was given hell, yes. hell for inventing something that is now like so culturally embedded with the body shop. Yeah. But, you know, not just the body shop, but the whole idea yeah. of look health, our planet, well-being, you know, the animals. Sort of stuff, yeah. I mean, they completely dissed her. Yeah. So there's an element whereby if I'm not getting pushback, I think, oh, dear, I must have must be doing something wrong. <laughs> I must be getting a little bit of establishment here. I mean, as I look at the problems in the world from business, and you've tackled yours from within the creative sphere of theatre and giving platforms and voice to people, and I'm trying to do it from within business, which is proving quite difficult. But nevertheless, we are still moving on. We are really moving mm. on. You've heard of the Better Business Act, which I'm co-chair of Absolutely. as well. And yes. how you're sitting, and some great men and great businesses that have joined that. Do you feel that post-COVID... And, you know, post-Malala and post-Greta and post-Black Lives Matter, do you feel genuinely, because I do, that there is this shift that we are more aware of? That there's a tangible feeling. Like when you were started Women of the World, of course it all needed to be done and there was very much a great awareness that there was inequality. But this feels like more than inequality. It feels like there is a a new shift that people are intrinsically feeling that is coming and that we need to embrace. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that when I started WOW, it was because not enough people did feel that, actually. And I was always getting, you know, I'm not a feminist, gestures. And also, you know, it was before Malala, before the Delhi rape, before the Boko Haram girls were captured. It was before so many of those things that incensed all of societies and went, hold on a minute, that can't be right. Even though those things were, of course, always happening. I mean, Sarah Everard is not a one-off, actually. You know, it's been happening and happening and happening. It's just if enough people are around at the time to suddenly highlight it, then it's a litmus test for whether society is ready to listen. I think it is now ready to listen to lots of these things. Do you think listening is coming from an energy of a power that's moving into the world? Yeah, I think... From Mother Earth that's just going, this is bigger than us. I feel when we, I'm talking to people, they feel this. Yeah, I think listening back to Bob Dylan and Joan Byers all those years ago, the famous, you know, times they are changing... And it's all about the wind of change is moving. The earth is moving under your feet. There is something that is tumultuous where ideas suddenly rocket through the planet uh, because the world has to shift. And that does feel like what is happening at the moment, but it also feels that that is why there's so much counter-resistance and that struggle for change. Of course. But I think that young people particularly are bewildered by the idea of inequality. But they see the inequality because we've unpacked these structures. They are angry, actually. Mm. They are bewildered and they're very, very impatient. And they've really got no time for people, maybe even like us, Mm. who are still sort of negotiating, maintaining one foot in either camp. 
I can see what you're talking about because I look at someone like Greta who's not standing in with her feet on both sides, you know, rocking. Mm -hmm. There was a great quote by one of the great senators who said, you know, we're hospice workers on one side and midwives on the other. You know, we want to bring in this new thing, but we just can't quite let go of that yet. I'm doing a, a festival in November in Brighton, Festival of Death. It's actually called the Death Festival, actually, where I'm asking people to really think about death in all kinds of contexts, from, like, digital wills through to making your own coffins, but also to sort of to talk about death, to recognise the fact that, you know, the one thing will definitely happen to us all, apart from being born, is that we will die. And what is the point of the way that we talk about death if it isn't to consider how we live? Well, that's so, all the great teachers, isn't it? Talk about, <laughs> uh, is this yeah. your festival? Have you started yeah, it? Yeah. See, I knew she'd come up with another idea. I think I'm going ahead and you're always one step ahead of me. <laughs> Last question, what gives you hope for the future? I think I kind of know the idea. But yeah, what truly gives you hope? And you go, I know this is happening. This feels good. This feels good. When you, through joy, realise that people walk away from an idea of a possible new world and they go, I think that's where I want to be. And I see that happening such a lot. I think that's where I want to be. And even with people not knowing how to get there or even what language that means that they have to start talking in, the feeling, the gasp of realisation that the world doesn't have to be what it is now, it can be different. That gasp, that's what gives me hope. People do a lot of gasping when they suddenly have a, a eureka moment. And I, and I see that happening very fast a lot at the moment. Have you had one? Yeah, I have. You know, I do a lot of swimming and it's incredibly helpful to have nature as yeah. part of this whole story of change. It isn't just us, you know, just the humans. But I can connect right back to, you know, the little girl than me that wanted to be a theatre director and got to be one. And I've got a four-year-old granddaughter and I, the gasp for me is that she won't be finished, the story of, of equality. Of course it won't be, but she will have a different set of sensibilities about her rights and the ability to like, realise her potential even more, which I think is wonderful. Mm. That is the... Yeah. It's getting better. Jude Kelly, thank you, as ever. <laughs> She's good, isn't she, guys? for listening and I leave you with this don't you dare having listened to this podcast and be inspired think that the care of this world is always someone else's job it's not it's yours every one of your actions counts make it happen